For creators and makers and passionate thinkers, and it's also a Halloween-themed episode, and it's kind of a challenge to everyone to commit to their own bar of excellence and go for it. Because whatever you do, you should do it awesomely and foster your voice as a creative thinker. Because what you leave in your wake is a legacy, and it's something that you will be proud of, and others will learn from for generations. So I am. Today, interviewing one of my heroes and someone thematically perfect for Halloween. Um, he's special effects and creature effects artist and innovator Mark Schostrom, and he's influenced so much of what you see today in horror and zombie TV and film, and also in me as a person. I feel like uh, just being an artist and a person that has a distinct voice and an imagination, um, it's like a person that can do magic in my eyes. So, hello, Mark. Hello. <laughs> tell, tell everybody where we're sitting. We're sitting uh, next to a train, and it might go by, and it might be loud. So, oh, What's next to the train? Oh, we're sitting next to the Halloween house, yes. which is awesome. Yeah, it, it was moved, and they plopped it right next to a train. That's the Michael Myers right. house. Michael Myers house. Um, so my first question is about being a creative thinker and the process of just defining your voice and fostering it and trusting it and learning how to use it because I think a lot of people have a hard time learning how to trust themselves and like listening to their instincts um, and that makes it impossible to kind of go for it so if um, if you could tell us like how did you figure out what you wanted to do as a kid like was it instant or did you did you know what you wanted to pursue as a, a creative pursuit well I had I had a lot of interest as a little kid uh, one interest was from watching you know, shows like the FBI. I wanted to be a, a Secret Service agent at one point. Then I discovered movies and Walt Disney comic books. And when I was, I guess, about nine years old, I saw The Bride of Frankenstein on television. And uh, that kind of clinched it for me. I thought the character was really intriguing and uh, I felt sorry for him. And plus he had a flathead and I was wondering where, where did all that come from. <laughs> and my mother said that the makeup artist created that. And uh, when I saw Planet of the Apes in 1968, I was probably 11, 12, and that was on the big screen, and that was the one that really did it for me, Yeah. Planet of the Apes. And did you kind of know instinctually, like, you wanted to do that? Like, you were inspired creatively? I was really inspired creatively. Uh, I didn't have any clue, of course, being 12 years old, how to get into it, but... At the same time, you know, I was seeing Planet of the Apes on the big screen for the first time. I was also uh, able to watch Dark Shadows because it came on at, I think, 2 p.m., 2.30. I would sometimes get home from school early, and I noticed that it had a lot of cool makeup in it. And when an, an old-age episode came on, TV Guide would tell about it. And my mother actually let me stay home from school sick once or twice to see the, uh, the Barnabas Collins, you know, at 150 years old that Dick Smith did. Wow. So uh, that was very inspiring. Um, and I just kept uh, reading about makeup. You know, there wasn't as much information, obviously, as I have today with the Internet and whatnot. Mm -hmm. There were a few books in the library, uh, occasional newspaper articles or TV Guide, or TV Guide articles and the behind-the-scenes makeup were, were good. So I knew that, you know, by that time I knew that makeup artists in Hollywood, quote-unquote, did this sort of thing, so... Were, was there any time, like, when you were first starting out, um, was, did you have, like, any doubts that you could do it, or were you, I feel like a lot of the time when you're an artist or a creative person, it's, like, really, really hard to convince yourself that you can pursue it, or that it's worthwhile as a career, and a lot of people will tell you, like, no, you should really do something that's reliable for an income, versus pursuing something, like, niche, or that's based on just your own craft or your own voice. So, was there, did you ever have, like, a moment where you were thinking, like, maybe I can't do this, or maybe this isn't? No, on a strictly personal level, I, I never had any doubt I could do it, or any doubt that I didn't want to do it. I didn't give too much thought to how the hell do I do it till I was a little bit older. 
I, I just the only thing I really knew is that uh, from reading these articles in Famous Monsters that oh, there's a place called Universal Studios. They have a makeup lab. A guy named Bud Westmore works there. I knew that the makeup artists did this sort of thing mostly in Hollywood. Some at like Shepperton Studios in England, or uh, what's the other Hammer Hammer Films. But I was American, and I figured, you know, I've got to eventually get to Hollywood, California, where they do this sort of thing. But I never had any personal doubt of what I wanted to do. Uh, at the same time, I didn't really have any knowledge of how to get there. I just knew that kind of where they did it, and I had to somehow get there, and then I'd figure it out later. Did you always kind of have conviction in your work? Like, I'm just thinking about... Blind stupidity, maybe, would be a <laughs> more accurate... <laughs> So you just kind of went for it. But you loved what you did. I feel like maybe that's significant. Yeah, I mean, I, I never sat down and scratched my head and said, oh, maybe instead of doing makeup, I should think about a, a career in accounting. You know, it was nothing like right. that. It was when you're looking at a career in music or makeup or any sort of art, writing, you tend to be very passionate about it. At least, right. at least I was that way. You get very focused. Right. That makes and sense. You, and you, I was almost of the the ilk that, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to figure out how, I don't know how, but I'll figure it out as I go, and nothing's going to stop me. Oh, wow. That's a, I feel like a very uh, valuable trait, like just even having that level of focus and passion for something is like rare, I think, in people, just because it's like, you're there's so many things along the way that are trying to, I don't know, make you second guess what you're supposed yeah, to I do. Yeah, I think and, often, you know, it'll be family members that are trying to be protective that will try to, to keep you back from doing any sort of art as a living because traditionally the starving artist is the starving artist. Right. A lot of parents I think will try to protect their kids and their, their meaning and their intention is good. Is there any advice you would give to other people that maybe have parents that are like telling them they shouldn't pursue their career in music or well, you, you can't convince your parents not to be protective if that's 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 what they're going to do. But at the same time, you're just going to have to go for your dream, whatever it is, whatever, any creative endeavor, any art, writing, music. Yeah. Traditionally, those are areas that aren't looked at upon as you know, something one generally makes a living in. Yeah. I know. I feel like also when you're a creative person, it's like if you don't do, if you don't express yourself or if you don't use that talent, you're like basically killing yourself, like suffering. You're being very untrue to yourself. Yeah. Uh, you can... Especially excruciating. You... I know a lot of writers. Um, some of them are very successful, some uh, not so successful, but they write every day because they have to. It's a creative thing you have to get out. Mm-hmm. Like what you're saying, if you don't go what you go for what you feel you you have a passion for, you're you're kind of killing part of yourself inside. Mm -hmm. Something that was put there for a reason. Yeah, I agree. Does that makes any sense? Yeah, like your part of your voice is cut off. Um, was there a pivotal moment in your life that you knew, like, oh wow, I have a lot of talent. Like I'm really good at. This. I still haven't had that moment. <laughs> Come on. No, there's a pivotal moment where I said, holy shit, I don't have any talent for this, but I really have to learn. Uh, that was getting into makeup early on and sculpting for the first time. I had no I had no natural talent for it whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, I'm kind of answering your question yeah. in a roundabout way. Did you um, apprentice somebody, or how did you... No, what happened was actually a very, very good thing. I had gotten a hold of Dick Smith's address, and that's kind of a funny story because I mentioned before that you know all the all the makeup artists work in Hollywood. So I moved to Hollywood. I moved to California, and I called every Dick Smith in the phone book, and <laughs> you know they weren't the Dick Smith. And then I called the makeup union. And I said, "Do you have Dick Smith's phone number?" He said, uh, "Yeah, he lives in New York, but we can't give it out." I'm like, "I just moved to the wrong state." Jesus <laughs> Christ. Anyway, long story short, I got Dick Smith's address in about 1980, and I wrote him a letter and sent some photographs of my makeup work and later on some of my sculpture. And he was very honest. He, he always answers people's letters, and he was very honest. He said, your sculpture is fair. That was the word he used, fair. Wow. It needs a lot of work. But he went on to specifically to tell me what I could do to improve it. 
So really, I didn't have any natural talent for sculpting, but it was my desire to impress Dick Smith even a little bit that made me work hard to become a better sculptor. Wow. That's funny. I mean, that's interesting, like... It's true, there's sometimes, like, when you are motivated to do something that you're not good at, it's, like, sometimes coming from a place of, like, total, utter fear of being, like, I'm just relating it to myself, but, like, utter fear of being found out or, like, you're wanting someone's approval or it's, like, just to try and fit in. Like, there's sometimes is like, a negative motivation that gets you to, like, really show up for yourself. In a way, I mean, at the same time, I wanted to, to prove myself as a sculptor forum to myself because I knew I wouldn't be able to succeed in this business unless I could sculpt and it's not like you can fake it right you can't have somebody you know, type your churn paper and send it in if you're doing a job and you're hired to sculpt you have to sculpt it right uh, another thing that happened early on about 1981 was I got a job with Rick Baker working on Videodrome for about six or eight weeks and that one was one of the best movies in history yeah and it was kind of you know it was kind of not too glamorous grunt work. All of us were making these flesh TVs, but at the same time, there was one moment where uh, Rick had just gotten back from England shooting American Werewolf, and he asked me to go on top of his office and get a bunch of crates and empty the crates so we could use them to ship some stuff to Canada, and I went up on top, and I opened the crates, and it was all the American Werewolf stuff. Fresh. Oh, wow. The last time it was viewed was being shot for the film, so... I'm up there for like an hour and a half, and finally Rick calls up and says, what the hell are you doing out there? I said, I'm, I'm just getting the crates, you know. But I was looking at the work up yeah. close, and that changed my sculpture overnight. Really? To see the beautiful stuff that Rick had done up close, six inches away, and it looked totally real. And I knew it was all sculpted. That's incredible. Um, so that, that made me really look at my own sculpture work in a very critical way and I was accepting a lot less for myself as being okay that's not good enough right because I've, I've seen I what Rick set the bar the high bar of how good it could be so good that it's so it's completely realistic from right in front of your eyes so that was a that was a high bar to reach for and right no matter what I sculpted even if I thought it was good if other people thought it was good I would tear it down and go no it's not good enough and I'd, keep at it again wow at the same time i I couldn't afford all this clay and plaster and latex to make masks or whatever everything i was sculpting so i had x amount of clay and one head i was sculpting on i would sculpt take a photograph tear it down and do something else and just keep practicing and practicing that might have actually made you better faster just having like having to do it so many times I guess I wasn't faster because I was using very hard clay and had to knead it each time but I mean like in your career honing your skill set you almost like went to the karate kid school like yeah in a way I mean it's funny uh, a few years ago I did a a sculpting demo in wet clay which is kind of soft and and easily easily worked you can work with it quite fast and I did a uh, somebody asked me to sculpt a replica of Jim Carrey's The Grinch which I'd Mm -hmm. never done and I blocked it out, and I, I banged it out in, I think, an hour. And it looked like the Grinch. Jim Carrey's the Grinch. It wasn't completely finished, but it was it was on the way. And I, I kind of stood back and looked at my watch and said, geez, I did it that fast. <laughs> but I think without the prior training yeah, it's like and the constant repetition. It's like your muscle memory. Yeah. And actually, you know, these days, you know, it's well known in Dick Smith's... Uh, makeup course and just he's talking to people he talks about how he was not a natural sculptor or a makeup artist in his day really? when he was beginning in 1945 his he had a passion for makeup but uh, he was like like a lot of us he didn't have a natural talent for it but he honed his talent he he practiced and sometimes that's all it takes is practice and repetition and constant improvement yeah i would say that's true of any in any artistic endeavor I think like, so you can you can learn the rudiments of guitar in a day mm-hmm. or a piano how how good you get is going to depend entirely upon practice mm-hmm. oh man that's amazing I feel like also when you saw the American werewolf it's like uh, <laughs> they say that you are as good as like your peers when it comes I feel like that's true especially in a like if you're working with a certain level of people you're only going to meet 
the highest bar that you can see around you. So it's like if you are working with people that are True. excellent, you you can see how far. It's like being able to see how far you can possibly go. Well, it's inspiring. At yeah. the same time, it's a little bit intimidating. But uh, you know, really seeing Rick's work up close, that was just uh, it was quite mind blowing. Oh, that's amazing. And and and, and his work is consistently like that. I, I worked with. Kazu and Rick Baker and David Anderson on a film called Life, and uh, Rick Baker and Kazu were the leads on that, and it was old age makeups on Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy, and at one point I was standing behind Eddie Murphy, and I was looking kind of at the back of his head and the back of his neck, and he's in his 95 year old makeup that Rick Baker and Dave Anderson had done, and it looked so real. I was standing a foot away, and I'm studying all the wrinkles and the coloring and it just even though I'd been professional for many many years at that point it still impressed me wow it was it was it wasn't makeup that looked like old age it was real wow that's cool i think i yeah when i was in uh, seattle i went to that it was a science and pop culture museum but i saw the, all these like old props but they were really 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 intricate like just in the mouth there was like a t- you know tongue and saliva and the teeth and i'm like i was just staring at every tiny little crack and crevice what film was that uh it was constantine oh i haven't seen that it's a, i really liked the the creatures like the design of them but i was like just i wanted to see one scene like i'm like where's the scene there's got to be something and it was like even if you were to like look upside down inside the mouth everything was really well well done well you know if you make something in makeup a monster or whatever you, you make it realistic to the eye you don't have to worry about whatever they're going to shoot on set what angle what camera what lighting it looks real to the eye you don't you can just not even Walk worry away. yeah um what Oh, I guess you've already kind of answered this, but you seem like a resourceful and brave person. Like, you can kind of make up solutions on the fly, and uh, you always kind of figure out what a solution to a problem is. Would you say, or where would you say that you got that quality? Or oh, that? I don't know. Desperation? I'm not sure. Um, I think just from being in the movie business for a while, for many, many years, actually, uh, you, you learn fairly early on that if a problem happens on set, no matter what it is, uh, it, everything screeches to a halt. Right. And when that thing screeches to a halt, that machinery of filmmaking, it costs a shitload of money. Yeah. Now, if the production screeches to a halt for, because of something you did, you have to, of necessity, figure out a way out pretty damn quick. Right. Um, I personally have never held up production because of any any mess up on my part or my effects not working but there have been times where <clears throat> for example uh, maybe a makeup is tending to fall apart because they, the actor's been in it for 18 hours they come to you and say we want to shoot a close-up and you, uh, you know, I'd say no you can't so instead of production screeching to a halt I'd, you know they'll production will say well okay well we're going to turn the camera this way we're going to shoot that person in his wide shot and give you time to it's repair the makeup thing. So you just learn of necessity that any time production halts on a movie, it's costing. Yeah. It could be a hundred thousand an hour. It could be a yeah. hundred thousand a day. But if that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. If you're the person that's caused that, I, I sure as hell wouldn't want to be that person. I wouldn't either. So I really learned of necessity early on in the film business that you know it's a very it's very much collaborative effort. And it's like a well-oiled machine. When one little screw comes loose and makes that wheel fall off, you don't want that pressure. You don't want those people to be looking at you. Right. So you, you get inventive and resourceful. I think the only time I came close to something like that happening was, uh, uh, well, there were two times, really. One was uh, I was on a movie called Elm Street 2, and I was shooting a huge transformation sequence that was scheduled for two days and the guy I hired to do a certain aspect of the, the was project. It, was it when Freddy comes out of there? Yeah. yeah. So, he, so he, cool. He wasn't ready. We have a truck out in front of my shop and we're ready to drive down to the studio and start filming and he told me, oh, I'm not ready. I need a few more days and I basically we drove to Raleigh Studios and I shoved him in a room and threw some food and said, you're not coming out until you finish that because I had hired him right. to create that. And he was 
he was going to come close to making me blow the biggest chance of my career and blow a deadline. And I've never blown a deadline before or since. That's like... So that was a little scary. And uh, the second time was a project called Deep Star Six where uh, it was a Friday afternoon and uh, one of the shots I needed to do was this creature had popping up out of the water with the eyes or with the whole jaw opening and all that. And my brilliant idea and a few people working with me was to get two stunt guys underneath this and push it out of the water. Mm-hmm. Well, that was all fine and dandy when we shot, you know, the test and some guy's swimming pool on a leisurely afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but we're on set and the guys are underneath holding this plastic head and it's absorbing a lot of water, which becomes really heavy. So they go to push it out of the water and the director wanted to burst out and the yeah. jaws open. Well, nothing happened. And they came to me producer and said we need to shoot this Monday it has to work so whatever it takes and it ended up costing me uh, over $10,000 out of my own pocket over the weekend to hire a bunch of mechanical guys to build a mechanical rig that would do it that would actually shoot out of the water so that was pressure but I did what I had to yeah because there was no way I was going to let that that rolling train of a motion picture or halt because of me. So yeah. It cost me, but if I hadn't delivered that Monday, the cost would have been a hell of a lot heavier. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, you can't predict the outcome, and the best policy is always to be accountable. Like, in big things and little things. So, turning down the thing, I think is well, a good thing, because it just speaks to the ethics that you have. No, you you just mentioned that... Um, the story of turning down the thing was I was early on in my career uh, some friends of mine got work on the thing I, I managed to get an interview my, one of my favorite movies oh one of mine too I, I got an interview with Ken Diaz and Eric Jensen Rob Oteen's producer and had a great interview I was very early on in my career but they liked my enthusiasm and my, my meager portfolio Weeks go by, and I ended up taking a job in the Beastmaster, but I'd committed to you know, X amount of weeks, and then they called me to work on the thing. And I'm tapping my fingers, going, what should I do? Well, my dad always told me, you know, don't bail on a job, always fulfill a commitment. So that's what I did, and I turned down the thing. I wish I hadn't, but <laughs> hindsight well, is twenty twenty. Yeah, I bet that ethic, though, has served you more in, than it's hurt. Life. I don't know. It still hurts every time I watch <laughs> the God damn it. <laughs> um, what is your favorite piece of your own work and why? Anything. Really, whatever I'm working on at the moment, I guess. I, uh, I was thinking about that question earlier. I, somewhere in my storage shed, I've got a bunch of reel-to-reel tapes of music I composed about 36 years ago. Really? Yeah, I actually got yeah, an interview at the Warner Electra Atlantic Records at Rockefeller Plaza in New York to play some of this stuff. Uh, maybe that's good. I don't know at this point. You should listen to it. I, I bet should. You it's cool. The tapes are probably brittle as hell. You I'd have to transfer them yeah. digitally. Yeah. That would be cool. You'd, uh, yeah, I'd probably you could put that on like oh, a movie. Good Lord. That would be awesome. I feel like all that stuff is like gold. It's just having this old time capsule. That's, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm a, I'm a musician, a photographer, a sculptor, a writer, makeup artist, so it's really hard to flip a coin and go, what's my favorite project, my creative, favorite creative project? What what do you consume to be inspired as an artist in any way? Like music or film or reading, any kind? Um, actually, one thing that inspires me a lot is, is great acting. I'm not sure why I have no interest in being an actor, but I, I've i been so close to working with actors over the years and so around it, watching how they perform and perfect their craft, that when I can see a good performance, and often in person, uh, it just impresses the hell out of me. I can think of a few instances like watching James Wood's work on The General's Daughter and watching Brad Dorff work on Star Trek. Uh, made my day just to watch those people work and do their thing. Yeah, I think it's like something about 
watching, uh, it's almost like the transformation. Like, at least, I know what you mean. Like, working with actors that are really, really talented, you're, like, so impressed at just the, it's almost like when you watch, like, old Broadway movies and they're, like, flawless in their dance routine. Yeah. And you're, like, there's this They make it look shot. so easy. I yeah. Mean, and you're, like, How I think most that? audiences have the misconception that acting is easy. Yeah. Oh, you can just walk on stage. I, it could be, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, when you watch somebody like, look, look at that film Francis with Jessica Lange from A to Z, that film, in some scenes, her performance going from one particular mood to another, amazing. Just yeah. mind-blowingly cool. And that they're like in it, they're like experiencing it manifesting on their faces. Yeah, to me, that's a topic. I mean, it's one thing to go in and make a person look like you know, a Frankenstein monster. That's, that's a certain type of achievement, but for a human being to create a whole new character and actually become that person, to me, that just it's always impressed me when yeah. it's done well. I can see that. That's true. So actors inspire me a lot. It's like magic. What's one pitch or project that didn't come to fruition? It's not the thing. <laughs> What's one project you had a heart for? Um, I, uh, it was a project. Would have been awesome. Though. It was a project called Duet for Life. Uh, what happened was uh, I had done a favor for a friend of mine, a production manager named Janine Novosol, who sadly has passed away. Uh, Janine somehow felt she owed me, and she called me in the mid-'90s and said, Hey, I'm working for Leonard Nimoy. He's directing his pet project. It's called Duet for Life. I said, what's it about? And she goes, it's the life story of the original Siamese twins. Wow. Chang and Aang, who were born, I think, in Thailand. Uh, or They were born in China and moved to Thailand. Anyway, the story was from when they were five years old to in their 80s, living in North Carolina. So this is in the 90s. The script was, was just terrific. It wasn't a horror film. Right. It was a high prestige project being directed by Leonard Nimoy. And of course, from the makeup standpoint, uh, the challenge was not only to create connected people, and there were a lot of scenes where they're, you know, they had no shirts on, you could see where they were connected, mm -hmm. but it was aging two Asian actors who had to look not only alike, but to age from, you know, five years old to 85. When my, my friend of mine, Dean Gates, he and I were going to do it together, and and he read the script and came over to my workshop and he looked up at me and said, if we do this right, it's Oscar time. Yeah. And that wasn't what I was thinking. I was thinking this would be just such a cool project and, you know, it's 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 a prestige project. Right. It was going to be done by the Samuel Goldwyn Company, not, you know, some horror schlock releasing company. But sadly, you know, like many good scripts that uh, float around for decades, it never got made. Oh, man. I was trying to, like, in my head, I'm like, wait, have I not seen this movie? No, it'd That's be incredible. terrific. There was another film, a, a Western, called Broom Dancer, that was a terrific script. It was much like Unforgiven. And, again, it was a sad case of a, a great script. I, I couldn't wait to do this. It wasn't a horror film. Not that there's anything wrong with horror films. I've, I've done a lot of them. But it was just something different to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the quality of the story and the writing was, like, terrific. Uh, a couple of those went by the wayside, and we just can't figure that out. Oh, man. That movie so Duet for Life awesome. was definitely the one I really wanted to do. And my, my friend Dean and I were trying to figure out, back in the pre-computer graphics days, just exactly how in the hell we're going to rig this so that... We don't have two guys glued together with a soft foam rubber and one has to run to the bathroom. The whole thing <laughs> tears apart. How do we bind these guys together so they can't escape? And yeah. We got Dean's wife, Cora, involved to, to think about how to sew some understructure, how to keep them together. There was a lot of practical stuff. Yeah. I, was, I was working on how to sculpt it and how to mold the damn thing. What material did you end up using for the... Well, we got us so far... So far in the testing when we found out that the project was just going nowhere. Oh. That happened fairly quickly, actually. Today, of course, they do it with computer graphics. And, you know, some I, guy is sitting at his Apple with a mouse pad. I secretly loathe creature based on with CG. 
I mean, sometimes you have to, but, like, I feel like there's such a difference in... It's the same thing I think about, you know, stop motion. There's life in photography, like mm-hmm. real photography, not digital. There's life and organic, I don't know, something else that's added. Well, sometimes it's, it's done right. Um, I know what you're talking about as far as being organic. Uh, when you have, say, Meg Mucklebones in the, in the legend guy in a rubber suit but it's so well executed and it's very organic and when she's coming out of the water yeah it's physical it's real yeah and a lot of cg monsters don't quite cut the mustard i mean i think you've got a lot of cg artists that have never sculpted they've never studied anatomy they've maybe never gotten away from their computer stations but when computer graphics works Oftentimes, you've got a makeup artist behind, like Everett Burrell. Does you know, he's a top CGI supervisor these days? He used to be a makeup artist. Oh, he's really? made molds. He's applied makeup. That he does a great job. All the the two headed lady in the, the new American Horror Story was Everett Burrell's work there. I gotta watch that show. And when uh, Del Toro did uh, Pan's Labyrinth. He knew exactly how to meld CGI and makeup, when to marry the two, when to use only CGI, when to only use makeup. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of those models in the show yeah. I was at. Well, guess guess what Del Toro's background is? He was a makeup artist for eight years, makeup really? effects artist. That's oh, why wow. he knew which you know which shots to meld the two and how to blend the two. That makes me love in the most effective more. fashion. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, really. In- uh, different too. I thought a lot of his creatures were just like so unique, and the shapes were really, and they were all very graphic. Like there's a, I think in one of the Hellboy movies, which are really cool. He's got a great eye. Oh, he's really got a great good. Imagination. And, all, and all the people he hires, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's a, a pretty hard taskmaster because he's got very specific visions. Mm-hmm. His, his work is just terrific. Um. I was going to ask about the actual the Elm Street 2 project in particular, because <clears throat> I know that, like, in the, another interview I read with you, you had you had to kind of, like, n- tilt the scale so that you got that that scene selected where the where he's bursting through. Tilt the scales? Well, you, like, did a couple of maneuvers so <laughs> that you were, like, presented. You made sure it sold through. and like. You know, it's funny you would mention that because I had uh, lunch yesterday with Michael Murphy, who was a line producer of that film. We hadn't seen each other in many, many years. And we were, we were talking about just the story you are asking about. It was basically, I had a meeting. The script said, and Jesse bursts, or, and Freddie bursts out of Jesse. That's all it said, that one line. So I had to create whatever that was, and I went into a meeting with the director who had an idea of putting the guy, the actor Mark Patton, in a red and green long sleeve sweatshirt or sweater and having balloons under it. And he's, he told me this specifically, yeah, we're going to blow up the balloons, and then the hand comes out, and I'm like... That's like cartoony. I'm walking away thinking, oh, my God. But he's the director. I've got to respect his <clears throat> vision. So I went back to my studio where I had a guy named Bart Mixon working with me, a terrific artist. And Bart could draw these wonderful storyboards, these cartoon graphic novel type storyboards. And I said, well, we need to make a big presentation to Bob Shea that had a new line next week. Bart, here's my storyboard for what the director wants. Make sure you draw it kind of small, make the frame small, make the character kind of goofy, put freckles on him. <laughs> and Bart kind of winks at me and goes, oh, I gotcha. That's and then I said, take my idea that we boarded and make the frames bigger, make it more dynamic. Yeah. And Martin, you know. Yeah. You know where I'm coming from. And I went in to make the presentation to Bob Shea and Jack Shoulders there, the director, and Michael Murphy, who I just mentioned. And Bob Shea goes, okay, let's see what you got. And I put both the frames on a on a counter and he Bob Shea beelined to my my design and didn't even look at Jack's idea he points to mine and goes that's what I want and I kind of looked over at Jack and he shrugged and like and I ran into Jack years later at the bookstore I don't think he was too happy to see me <laughs> but I was I was you know on the road to making my career work and I knew this was a big and chance it's like incredible. and I wasn't going to I wasn't going to do it with balloons under a guy's sweater I yeah. knew that 
So it was really, the motivation was, well, I think I would attribute it to having a high bar just for your craft, but then also I think knowing it's for, you want to get out of it something that like you're proud of, and therefore it was like... Uh, yeah, I wanted it to be something I was proud of, but I also was very well aware that this was a really good film for my career. Because Nightmare on Elm Street had just come out, and it was like huge. Mm-hmm. Here's a sequel. I'm doing this standout sequence in the middle of a movie. I've got to make it dynamic, and it did help my career. It helped it enormously. If I'd done balloons under a sweater, I, I probably would be, uh, yeah, you know, sweeping floors after that. <laughs> That's like a big moment, I think, in your life when you like, kind of, I don't know, like you go with what you think you're, so, you know, you're supposed to do versus like. You, your bar sur- surpasses the people you're working for sometimes. Well, I didn't want the movie to screech to a halt in the middle yeah. while some guy's sweater is swelling up either. Yeah. I don't think that wouldn't have gone over too well with anybody. Oh, man, it's such a cool... And it's your hand, isn't it? You're the hand A lot double. of it, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, cool. my hand and Gregor Punchance's hand. I'm going to try and find a clip and post it. I'll oh, link God. to it on this because <laughs> it's that cool. Um... Uh, can you talk about what it's like to be a working creative person just in the industry? Like any words of wisdom to others that are trying to start a career in a creative field that they have to be paid for? That they have to be paid for? Well, it's like if you if you commit to doing your craft for a living, it's like I feel like one of the hardest things for a lot of people is like charging for their work. Or it's like you get all these weird and comfortable things related to your own value when it's your art I don't know if people will charge enough sometimes or if they it's like even demanding enough for your time I feel like is its own weird battle like overcoming well, that's kind of a multifaceted question um, I mean yeah. you have to value yourself um, one thing I never advocate is working for free I mean uh, we all start somewhere I worked on I don't think I've ever done a job for free. Really? I know a lot of people who have. But the thing is, a lot of these, specifically makeup students, get told at makeup schools that you have to work for free and that you have to work your first few jobs for free, that you might have to work a few years for free. And these poor young students believe it. It's bullshit. A lot of people are told that in a, like in, in different fields. like They tell a lot of people that out of uh, art school, like... You're, it's you bullshit. should try and get an internship. Where, where's free. the self-worth in that? I mean, do you do you go to a business college or a community college and get a BA degree in accounting and go work for Bank of America for free? No. So why should any artist be any different? Why should a writer be different? You may be inexperienced, but that doesn't mean people can take advantage of you. I've always been adamant about that. In fact, I was teaching at a... I taught at a couple of makeup schools, and I was teaching at this one, and they... I would teach my students for nine weeks, do not work for free. You know, even your first job. Get a hundred bucks, something, but mm-hmm. do not value yourself so little that you're going to work for free. And then they'd have some person come in at the end of my class and give them a pep talk and say, well, you might have to work for free. And I'd be pushing that person out the door saying, I just told them for nine weeks, do not work for free. And what happens is they, they get out in the industry, whether you're a makeup artist or or writers or whatever and all of a sudden new producers here oh all these people are working for free we can get them for free oh this this makeup artist oh she's worked for free the last few projects let's get her she'll work for free so you have the industry the new people in the industry believing that all these newbies are up for grads for nothing and they perpetuate that and that's really hard to break so you get somebody who's reasonably competent goes in and says hey I'm going to do this but I'm not going to work for free that person's going to be facing a hard wall it's like it sets a precedent totally for, for others but also for yourself like you tell yourself like I'm not good yet or I'm not good to enough to well, pay it's, or... a, it's a matter of what you tell yourself you can, you can tell yourself I'm not good yet I'm not good enough yet or you can say I'm not experienced yet but I value myself, mm-hmm. and I have worked a certain amount to the point where I deserve some pay. Right. Oh, that's cool. You have to value yourself. Uh, if you don't, who else is going to? 
It's true. It's true. I feel like in like all walks of life, when it's personal, professional, whatever endeavor, you you have to first champion yourself. You do absolutely. It's the key to being, yeah. Believing in yourself—that's everything. Not just valuing yourself and your art and your craft, but believing in yourself. Because again, if you don't, there will probably be a lot of times when you're the only person in the world who does believe in yourself. And if you abandon yourself, then it's really all over. You know? That's why I'm all about self-love, like building self-love and making that. Like you've got to build that bond with yourself so strong and then everything else works out. It's like once you have that, it's well, like... Well, sometimes it takes a while, but yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Everything comes out of that. Um... Because you can, you can have, if I can interrupt, you can have, say you've got some, some person who wants to be an actor or actress and their family has no interest whatsoever. They just try to shoot down their child's dream. Well, you know, that person may go on to believe what their parents told them or their family said, oh, you're screwed up to think you can ever do this. Or that person can say fuck everybody, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this because I do believe in myself. Mm-hmm. That person will probably make it because they may not have the belief and support and love of their entire family that doesn't understand what they're trying to do, but they're going to have, they're going to love themselves and believe themselves. And, you know, that's yeah. the fuel they need to succeed. I also think once you start doing it, like you, if you kind of just jump and then go for it, like the first success you have, you're like, <gasps> It's all that, the bubble of, of what everyone told you just pops immediately, and you're like, ha, huh, I can do anything I want. Like, you yeah. realize like, listen it's all to, Listen to Van Halen jump. Listen yeah. to it loudly before you go into your audition. Yeah. <laughs> That'll help. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, okay, and then lastly, um, because I'm going to be Linda from Evil Dead 2. Oh, my God. Okay, let's see the money. Come on. I'm I know, kidding. right? <laughs> um... Evil Dead 2, which is one of my favorite movies in the history of the world. And I know this is probably a long question, so you, if you Go want to shorthand it. it, what is a quick tip you can give to people out there, like me, who want to make a convincing uh, wound, like a flesh wound on a budget? Um, so, like, for example, the sliced line of a severed head, like on my neck. Um, and I have, like, supplies, like a latex. Uh, and uh, uh, No latex. Some, like, what do you call that? The uh, makes it look makes your skin kind of buckle it's like a drying collodion is that what it is yeah like a splint well blister thing I would avoid collodion it makes cool scars but it burns your skin a lot and (gasps) and it comes off once it pops off you can't put it back on that's a that's a stage material they used in the 1920s it's not for the current day even latex you can do cool things with but it's a little bit archaic um I mean, if you're out in you know Nebraska and you have no makeup store, you can get a Duo eyelash adhesive, and that's essentially latex without ammonia. That's very good for making wow, really? cuts and bruises and blistered skin. Wait, so what would I use in the place of latex that's like... Uh... Well, today there's a material called third degree, which is a two-part silicone. You can only get it in the pro makeup stores like you know, Nigel's or Friends or whatnot. Uh, but it's a really cool material. It's part A and B. And if you put just the tiniest touch of any sort of makeup foundation color in it, uh, mix A and B, and you have to keep keep them separate. In fact, you can't put one jar lid on the other or, or it'll become glued shut. So the wow. first thing you do when you buy third degree in the jars, label the top lid, whether it's A or B. Keep them separate. I put them on separate sides of the table mm-hmm. and have some 99% alcohol handy to dip into. You basically mix the two together. It's like It looks like a bathtub caulk, but with a little flesh tone in it. Mm-hmm. It's a silicone. It looks just like that. You spatulate it, and you can formulate it and smear it on the skin with a spatula or your fingers. But the trick is you have to keep your, your tool... You know, your spatula, your metal spatula, or your finger soaked in alcohol to keep working it. If wow. your finger or your tool gets dry, it'll it'll be very hard to work with, and you can't you can't fashion the material with any sort of latex sponge because it won't cure. And this is all in their instruction kit. But so it's a it, great material to do 
And then you just apply it directly oh, to the skin? Yeah, directly to the skin. Awesome. And it looks great, and it peels off, and you can reuse it later. In fact, I was doing a film in Indonesia called Java Heat, and I pre-made all these prostate transfers that we made. You know, it took six weeks to make all these wounds. And I didn't like the way they, they worked at all. And I said, I went through all the third degree I'd bought, and I'd... I asked my assistant, Kamala Sari, I said, do they have any more third degree in Jakarta? I said, go buy it all. So she, <laughs> she flew to Jakarta and over the weekend and came back with all the third degree That's that me. they had in Indonesia. <laughs> and we used, I just used that for the rest of the movie for all the wounds and bullet holes and cutthroats. Oh, it was great. It was oh, that's awesome. Piece of cake, burns, you name it. I'm glad I asked you. It, I, boy, it saved my ass. I just bought a bunch. Of <laughs> no, for blisters, duo eyelash adhesive works fine. You know, we basically put it on, stipple it on, and dry it with a hairdryer, and then you can peel it up and cut it, and you just play with it a bit. But for what you're talking about, for that mm-hmm. join on the head, third, yeah. third degree. Awesome. But you have to paint it. You have you can't paint it directly because it's silicone. Any makeup will just come off. So you have to mix the color in. No. You can mix color in first, or you cannot. But to put makeup over it, you have to spray it with a Krylon. It's a makeup company, a German makeup company called Krylon Fixier Spray. All my friends at Krylon will be so happy I'm promoting their products. <laughs> um, and that way, you, you put that stuff on it, and it'll the makeup will take. It'll, you know, the, the makeup will adhere to it. It won't just come off. Or you can mix it in the wet version of it. Will it stain it all the way, or will it How feel? Do you mean? Like- like, you said that um, before it's, when you're mixing it, can you add pigment to it? Yeah, generally when, you, when you've got your third degree A and B in different little spots on your palette paper, mix a tiny bit of like a cream foundation into one, mix it up, and then you mix the two together. Mm-hmm. And it'll be kind of translucent flesh tone. But if you want to put makeup over it, you have to spray it with that fixer spray. Like, say, if you're doing linen, you want one half to be the clown makeup color, the mm-hmm. doll color, and the bottom half rotted white, flesh. The white grease stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And Linda was, she was essentially a, it was like a doll makeup, like a clown makeup, clown white. And then uh, the eyebrows. Is that Was that intentional? That she would turn into a clown? Uh, I don't remember. It's been so long. <laughs> I don't remember. Because I, I was studying it, and it does look like... Almost like a, yeah, like a clown, like extra rosy cheeks, and then there's like very thin drawn on I think eyebrows. that was Sam Raimi's idea. I don't remember where it came from. But yeah, it was the doll's head on a, a rotted corpse body. It's <laughs> uh, wonderful. Gonna go trick-or-treating? Uh, we're gonna go to the Queen Mary. Oh, wow. To a haunted maze. There's a lot of... I, I stayed in a haunted room once with Queen Mary. It was very trippy. Dude. Well, I've read a lot of the stories that uh, happened at Queen Mary. Uh, apparently, there's one room that they don't even use for offices anymore that's got such nasty vibes. And, uh, but no, I was, in a, I was in a room there, and there was a room next door, and oh, I could hear... I felt like I was being watched. My girlfriend and I felt like we were being watched all night. And we kept hearing tapping behind the wall three in the morning I wake up and there's tapping and I'd call that room number I could hear the phone ringing inside but there's nobody there yuck we both felt we were being yeah Yeah. oh I've been in uh, several haunted places and it is like Uh, if you want to go to the have you heard of the uh, the heart building at Paramount Studios yes What's in there? If you if you Google haunted heart building H A R T Paramount Studios, you'll f- you'll find a few stories, and of course they're online now. But when I was working on Star Trek, a friend of mine named Ed uh, was a security guard on Star Trek, and we're sitting outside late one night talking ghosts and stuff. And he goes, "I got to tell you what happened to me." He was a security guard. Uh, he, he isn't now, but at the time he'd been working Paramount Security. And before Star Trek, one of his duties was to walk around and check certain buildings at 3 in the morning with a flashlight. Okay. And this, I heard, this is not a bullshit story. Ed told this to me directly. This happened to him. So he's walking around about 3 in the morning. This, now, he went into the Hart building. He said the first thing that happened was he smelled like flowery old-time perfume. And then it kind of dissipated. He didn't think anything of it. He thought, oh, maybe some people working late. And a lady just left. So he goes upstairs. He's 
walking down this very narrow hallway, and Ed is about 6'2", 6'3". He's a big guy. He comes back, and the only light is his flashlight. And he said he's partway down the hall, coming back on the second floor, and he smelled the same perfume in his nose, only said this time it was really strong, like old-time, old-lady perfume. And he said he felt hands caressing his shoulders and his neck. And he ran out screaming. Oh, my God. He just, he was just kicked the door open screaming because of some, apparently some ghostly lady from the 1920s or uh-huh. 30s with this very distinctive perfume was caressing his shoulders and neck. Oh, my God. That's he, so He gnarly. said it was pretty freaky. And that's the first I heard about the Haunted Heart building. And, the, mm-hmm. and the, it's quite well known that, you know, her most distinguishing characteristic is her flowery, old-time perfume. And, that's and Ed told me another story about uh, a bunch of writers working on the ground floor of the Hart Building one time, having a writer's meeting. And all of a sudden, one, one of the writers started, like, twitching and having almost a convulsion. And he, he said to the other people later, he just was being caressed. Again, <gasps> he was being, some fingers and hands were caressing his shoulders and neck. Oh, my God, who is this old lady? I don't know. I'd love to find out who she is. I'd love to experience it myself, although I'd probably... You, you know, probably would hate it immediately myself. after. <laughs> 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 be, I, had a, I had a ghostly experience, but uh, that's for next Halloween. Okay, <laughs> I like that idea. Um, well, thank you very, very much for talking to me. And I respect you quite a bit. It wasn't evident in your vision, and I feel like I know you... Oddly, like somehow I'm connected to you because I see what you see in your mind's eye. Like there's something that translates very clearly to me that I find very special and different. And I think that's when, you know, it's like that thing where someone's music will really hit the right chords in, in you. I feel like I have that where I see that in your work and I'm like, that's Well, I appreciate awesome. you saying that. It is so, it's like some, it's like maybe we're distantly related in a tribe from millions of years ago. Who knows? Um, Could be. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Well, in closing, I'll do a little closing thing. Um, To be different is a gift. So you should celebrate all that makes you that way, all that is unique and atypical. And that treasure is from you, and it's who you are, and it's something no one else in the world has. So, in honor of celebrating who you are as a creative person, and in honor of Halloween... Um, I invite everyone to go for it, especially today, and let your legacy of awesomeness begin. And don't forget to smile. Happy Halloween.